Amen. Welcome to Incarnation this morning. Good to be in worship with you. I just want to say something about our worship that you might not have noticed before. Have you ever noticed the central role that the cross plays in the liturgy of the church? So the service begins when we process the cross down the aisle, always looking to the cross. That signals the beginning of the service. And then the service ends when we recess the cross down the aisle. We sing a recessional hymn and we head out into the world. It's like the cross is leading the way for us back into the world. Even in the middle of the service, we take up the cross again during the gospel reading, just as we just did. We process the gospel among the people, remembering that Jesus came down from heaven and came among the people and died on the cross. The cross is the central message of the Gospels. Indeed, it is the crux of the whole story of the Bible. And it's the reason why the word crux even became a phrase, right? It even became a word that we use for that. This this issue of central importance, the pivot point, the essence of what we believe is seen in the cross. Paul calls the cross Paul calls the gospel the word of the cross. There's something about the cross that sort of sums it all up for us. Now what I want to talk about today is what some theologians have called cruciformity. Have you ever heard this word, cruciformity? Having our lives molded and shaped by the message of the cross of Christ. So cruciformity, in brief, is cross-shaped love. That's what cruciformity means, cross-shaped love, a cross-shaped life. So when we say this, we're not just referring to believing in the message of forgiveness and salvation that comes to us through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, although that is a beautiful thing, is it not? It's a very beautiful thing. But for the earliest Christians, the cross was understood not only as the means of their salvation, but as the symbol of their new way of life. Viewing the cross in this sort of way was intentional because Jesus set it up that way. After he washes the feet of his disciples in John 13, he tells them, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, you must love one another. And how has Jesus loved us? By laying down his life for us, right? That's why he makes it even clearer in John 15. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So the cross was not only a message to be believed, it was that, but it was also a lifestyle to be lived. We live our lives in such a way that we are laying down our lives. For those who are around us. That people see the cross and the, way, and, the, and the ethic of the church. Now this call was not just about martyrdom where somebody literally lays down their lives for others. If we read the New Testament closely, we'll see that it was expressed in every aspect of life, guys. It's all over the place in the New Testament. So in the Christian community, the cross is the reason why, we'll, why we're told to put others before ourselves. Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Why? Why should we do that? Because Jesus himself, Paul explains, took the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So the shape of our salvation, Paul is saying, should dictate the shape of our common community life together. In a similar way, the cross is the decisive symbol for Christian marriage. Is it not husbands love your wives how as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? That's the ethic in Christian marriage. It comes from the cross. We also know from Christian history, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, um, Bishop Clement of Rome, writing in 95 AD, was talking about the way that uh, Christianity started to impact the slave trade and slavery in the first century church. There were churches that were purchasing the freedom of Christian slaves from the overflow of their money. And in fact, some Christians decided to take the place to sell themselves in the place of somebody else who was in slavery. Where did they come up with that idea? The cross of Jesus Christ, who died as a ransom for many. A new command I give you, said Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So this emphasis on cruciformity, on cross-shaped love, inspired the early Christian martyrs. It set the tone for Christian community. It defined Christian marriage. It eventually led to the, the end of slavery. And that's a historical fact. Without the cross of Jesus, slavery would not have ended in this world. And I know that there's actually still slavery going on. You know how that's going to end? By the cross of Jesus. By people who are, who are seeking the end of it in the name of Jesus, in the name of the crucified Lord. So for the Christian, this principle of cruciformity is applicable to all areas of life. The New Testament applies it across the board. So turn with me, if you would, to your reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's on page 967 of your pew Bible. That should be in front of you. So grab one or share one. And here St. Paul applies the cross-shaped love of Jesus to the topic of money. And he does so in great detail. Now what, what was going on is that Paul in his travels had begun everywhere that he was going in his missionary journey. He was taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And the reason why is because there was a great famine in Jerusalem. And so the, the irony is that the church that started it all was the poorest. And so the gospel began to spread forth from the poorest church, from just about the poorest church in all of Christendom. They spread the gospel from that place. But then what happened is Paul began to take a collection in all the Gentile churches to bring back, to present to the church in Jerusalem. And actually people would give this lump sum, this generous gift to Paul and his companions, and they would usually send him, uh, send a person or two from their community to make sure that that gift was used in the right way. And Paul didn't mind that. He submitted to the checks and balances. Oftentimes I'll say to our vestry, to our board, when people are kind of wondering and they want to see money or the way that I'm using stuff, I'm like, if the Apostle Paul could submit to checks and balances, I should be willing to as well. Amen? Amen. All right. So, um, so Paul's taking up this collection in Jerusalem. And really the central verse, the central verse of this whole passage is verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving them a reason. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now let's break this down a little bit, because this is such a significant verse, but it's so easy to just kind of pass over these things lightly. When was Christ rich? When was he rich? 
Yeah, a long time ago in his pre-existent state. When he's up in glorious heaven in complete safety and security, surrounded by angels that are singing his praises. When was Jesus rich? Not when he was born of Mary, when they had to offer a sacrifice of a dove rather than the customary sacrifice because his parents were poor. That wasn't when he was rich. Jesus was rich before he came down from heaven. So Paul is affirming the pre-existence of Jesus here. By the way, when did he become poor? When he took on the frailty of human flesh and poured himself out for us on the cross. And why would he do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? This is the gospel, guys. So that you, so that you, so that you, so that you might become rich by his poverty, that by believing in this promise of what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf, you might become glorious beings, forgiven, holy, capable of eternal joy in his presence. The church fathers put it this way. They, say, they said, he became that which we were in order that we might become that which he is. What he is in himself, the son of God, we might become through him sons and daughters of God with that kind of standing in heaven. In light of such a glorious salvation, the earliest Christians knew that everything needed to be reconsidered. If this is what God does, everything needs to be reconsidered. Everything needs to be looked at through the prism of the cross of Christ. And here in great detail, the scriptures tell how the cross-shaped love of Jesus affects the way we should think about money and what we do with it. Now, as I was reading through this, I came up with at least 10 points that we could look at. But we're supposed to be preaching shorter sermons in the summer. I'm going to focus on five. You can find more than ten, okay? Um, so I encourage you to, to go back to this 2 Corinthians uh, 8, 1 through 15, and, and just, just take suck all the marrow out of it, guys, because this is really good stuff. So the first point that I want to make, first, cross-shaped giving. So all the points that we're going to make is about cross-shaped giving. Cross-shaped giving looks to the example the good example of others. Do you know any brothers or sisters? I'm sure you do. I, I know I do. Do you know any brothers and sisters who are especially generous and sacrificial with their money? Someone who lives simply and pours out their resources for the mission of God. Paul is saying, then let them serve as an encouragement to you. Here Paul points the Corinthian church, which was a wealthier church, to the example of the churches in Macedonia who were comparably much poorer. He says this. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, I think it's cool that the poorer church, Paul mentions their extreme poverty, that the poor church sets the example for the wealthier to follow. It reminds me of the widow who put in two copper coins in the offering, and Jesus says she gave the most. Right? There's all these people bringing these massive sums to the offering in the temple. Jesus says she gave the most because, she, because the rest of the people contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. For her, it was the most, and so in God's eyes, it's the most. 
This is often the way that it works. The poor setting the tone in giving. That's, it's the ironic truth. I found it in the world. The poor are often more generous than the wealthy. But it can also work the other way around, actually. Carissa and I are friends with a couple who challenges us every time we visit them. They make a higher income than us. The husband has a good job as an engineer. The woman has a master's degree in education. They spend so little on themselves, though. You look at their house. They live by a tight budget. Their house is humbly furnished. They reuse items that almost everybody would just throw away. And the reason why they live this way is in order to maximize the amount of money that they can give away. Um, I mean, this couple is just giving away to their church, to missions, to the poor. And Chris and I look upon their godly example in a way similar that Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to look to the churches in Macedonia. Their lives are exemplary to us because of the way that they apply the ethic of the cross to their finances. So that's the first point. Cross-shaped giving looks to the good example of others. How do we apply this principle? You can see examples of that around you or from Christian history. We apply this example by understanding and seeing the way that people are living this out, the good examples. Okay, next I'm going to actually tackle two points at once because Paul really bundles the two together. Verse 3. He says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. So these are points two and three. On the one hand, cross-shaped giving is in accordance with our means. But on the other hand, it's sacrificial. So it's according to our means, but it's also sacrificial. I'll start with the second point first, that cross-shaped giving is sacrificial. And the sacrificial nature of Christian giving should be obvious because the nature of the cross, the sacrificial nature of the cross is obvious. Paul says that the Macedonian church gave beyond their means. Did he not? Jesus commends the poor widow for giving all she had to live on. And consider the example of the Apostle Paul himself. Even though Paul was one of the most successful ministers in the history of the world... He often went without for the sake of the gospel. He said he knows, he knows the key to being content in all things, whether in plenty or in want. He knew, he knew the key to being content. But listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. He says, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Can you imagine the circumstances? One of the most successful ministers in the history of the world, cold and naked for the sake of the gospel. I think in the church, our witness to American culture would be stronger if pastors looked more like the Apostle Paul and less like CEOs. You know, there's a level of sacrifice that the people of God are called to and can be gripped by and can be just kind of swept up into when we consider the reality of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. And this is actually good. It's, it's, it's for our good. Paul commonly will tell people to give because he, he desires the benefit that they'll receive through that. Because of their alignment with the kingdom of God, he believes this is actually really good for him. As Mother Teresa put it, I have found the paradox... That if you love until it hurts, there can be no more hurt, only more love. 
That reminds me of what Jesus says. He says, anyone who tries to save his life will lose it. Anyone who loses his life for my sake will what? Truly find it. Truly find it. So the call to sacrifice is not just a call to the cross. It's a call to live into the resurrection, which God brings to us. So cross-shaped giving is sacrificial. And that sacrifice actually not only blesses other people, but it ends up benefiting us. On the other hand, what does Paul mean when he says that they gave according to their means? Well, at the very least, he means you can't give what you don't have. Right? He clarifies this point in verses 12 and 13. He says that giving is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. So if you don't have $50 a month, you can't give $50 a month. Right? We shouldn't be supporting missionaries on our borrowed line of credit. Further, Paul goes on to say, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So that wouldn't make sense. In other words, that kind, there's a kind of sacrifice that's actually self-defeating. If, if, if I lend you $500 today, but my rent is due tomorrow, then we're sort of only pushing the problem downstream. <laughs> Further, later in the passage, Paul says that there should be fairness in the body of Christ. And by this, I don't think, and, I, and I, interpreting through the rest of Scripture, I don't think he means that all Christians should have the exact same amount of possessions and money. Notice he doesn't tell the Corinthian church, for example, to give to the poor or Macedonian churches. But it does mean that we should be prepared to respond to the extreme needs of others. Like the church in Jerusalem. Right? They're giving of themselves. Why are they giving of themselves to this church? Because this church, I mean, these people are starving. They need help. And, and not only the rich churches, but even the comparably poorer churches are prepared to help these brothers and sisters in their time of need. We're not to store up our treasures on earth in such a way that we harden our hearts to the needs of those around us, especially our brothers and sisters. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, and then listen, so that their abundance may supply your need. So notice that there's a readiness to both give and to receive. Right? To be generous and to be interdependent. And that's the fourth thing. That cross-shaped giving both gives and receives from others. Both gives and receives from others. This might be the hardest thing for some of us. Because right? some of us are much more comfortable with giving than receiving. We want to be the we want to be the benefactor. We want to be the paternalist. You know, we're going to come into this situation. We're going to solve it. We're going to fix you. I'm going to give you the great advice. I'm going to give you the money. I'm going to solve all your problems. But don't 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 try to tell me that I need anything. Don't try to tell me that you're trying to give something to me. Don't try to tell me that you're trying to bless me in some way. In fact, if you try to bless me, I'm going to tell you I don't want that. Right. The symbol of this reluctance to receive from Scripture is Peter, right? When, when Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, he says, No, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. I never. And Jesus says what? Peter, unless you let me wash you, you have no part with me. Right? I think the Lord's saying that to some of us here this, this morning. Unless you let me wash you, you have no part with me. 
Because Jesus said this in his ministry, right? That he came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The great physician came to this world to heal those who know they're sick. Not those who think they're all good. I don't need that from you, Lord. I didn't need you to die on the cross. Thank you very much. The beginning of the gospel is understanding that we all have needs. We're all needy. Mm -hmm. We all need from the Lord. We all need to receive. And if there's like a door in your heart that hasn't been opened for a while, it's sealed shut, it's bolted locked with like seven locks, because you're afraid of being vulnerable, you're afraid of being in the place of need, man, by the, Holy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may they be unlocked today. So that you can open the door of your heart. Let the king of glory come in. Receive from him today. Receive what he wants to give you today. The gospel comes from humbling ourselves and knowing that we need to receive. We need to receive. The reason why we come forward like this during communion with our palms crossed like this. is just a reminder to ourselves that nobody takes the grace of God. Nobody takes the grace of God. We receive it. We receive it. We come forward. All of us are beggars. All of us are poor. All of us need to come to the hospital and see the doctor. Mm-hmm. Amen. And so don't just be comfortable with the paternalistic place of power. I'm going to sort your life. Let God sort your life out. Yes. Let yourself be ministered to by God, by the people of God. Amen. Don't think that you're willing to submit yourself to God if you're not willing to submit yourself to God's people. Mm-hmm. Don't deceive yourself. If you're reluctant to receive from people, you're reluctant to receive from the Lord. But there are others who have become so comfortable receiving that they're sort of stuck in that place. They're programmed in that place. They never get around to helping others. That's on the other hand, Ephesians 4.28. It's a really interesting verse. It says, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor... Doing honest work with his own hands. Listen to that transformation. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Isn't that an interesting transformation? The person who is stealing begins to use their hands for hard work so that their hands can be used to supply the needs of other people. Right? We don't just stay in the position of receiving indefinitely. If, if you're reliant on your parents at, you know, at the age of 40, the way that you are at the age of 15, something is not right. right? We don't just get locked into that. And the way that I go about life is I'm just kind of receiving. <laughs> I'm just receiving from people. And in fact, if you want a good counterbalance to this passage, um, I point you to 1 Timothy chapter 5, where there's a great teaching about widows who are truly widows differentiating in your giving. The church had to be really careful because people would try to take advantage of the church. And so how can we give to people who truly have need? That's the purpose. That's the point. So cross-shaped giving is comfortable with both giving and receiving from others. So we've mentioned four things so far. I'm just going to summarize before we go into this last point and I conclude. First, cross-shaped giving looks to the good example of others. Number two, cross-shaped giving is sacrificial. Number three, it's according to our means. Number four, it both gives and receives from others. And finally, five, cross-shaped giving is voluntary. You see that in this passage? It's voluntary. While the churches of Macedonia gave generously and sacrificially, it's also said in verse three that they gave of their own accord. In other words, of their own free will. They, they weren't forced. They weren't under compulsion. In fact, in verse 2, it says they gave out of an abundance of joy. 
It's like their cup was overflowing, and they gave out of that overflowing cup. Acts 5 tells the story of the early days in the church when many of the believers are radically sharing their possessions. And there's a story of a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira who, are, um, who sell a piece of land, and they pretend that they're giving it all to the church. It's okay. It's okay, guys. <laughs> oh, it's all right. It's all right. Um, they pretend that they're giving it all to the church, but they're actually, they actually lie. They're presenting that as a front, but they actually lie. And when Peter finds out, he's furious about their hypocrisy, but he says this. He says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And he says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So you didn't need to pretend that you were doing this thing. Nobody commanded you to do this. You were bringing it and you were pretending that you were giving a voluntary offering. To bless the church. And that, that's what was so wrong. That's what was so wrong about their doing, uh, what they were doing. This is, this is one of the important differences between communism and Christian sharing. Right? In a communist system, the government in, in exacts an involuntary sharing from all of its citizens. In the kingdom of God, the giving can be just as radical. Oftentimes it's even more radical, but it's completely voluntary. And the reason should be plain to us. Because genuine love is always freely given. Right? Nobody wants, nobody wants to receive flowers from their husband and have the husband say, I kind of felt like I needed to do this. <laughs> I mean, that, that would ruin it, wouldn't it? It's the voluntary offering that makes it a sweet thing. That's why Paul says in verse 8, I say this not as a command. He said, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. He's after genuine love. So the apostolic teaching we get in this passage was not originally intended to be a commandment in the strictest sense of the word. In speaking to the Corinthian church, not to mention future generations like us, Paul inspires with the, them with the example of the Macedonians, he quotes this challenging principle from the Old Testament scriptures. He even points to the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. He's pouring it out. I mean, he's trying to influence these guys. But in the end, love gives the beloved freedom to choose for themselves. Amen? That's the way it works. God doesn't want your forced love. God doesn't want you to be forced to love him. As T.S. Eliot once put it, to do the right thing for the wrong reason is treason. The truth is, brothers and sisters, that God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our money. Everything in heaven and on earth already belongs to him. He doesn't need our gifts or our time. If he wanted to, God could do everything himself. He doesn't need anything from us. But there's something that he wants from us. He doesn't need anything from us, but there's something that he wants from us. God wants our hearts, guys. God wants our love. He wants our hearts. There was a guy I knew in undergrad who wrote a song about this. And uh, this, this is how the chorus went. He said, um, What can I give? To the one who has 
everything. What can I give to the Creator of all? What can I give to the One who has everything? I give to you my heart as an offering. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing this morning. The Lord has everything. The Lord can do everything. He doesn't need from us. When we give Him our money, it's an offering of our hearts to Him. We give our time, it's an offering of our hearts to Him. We give our children to Him, it's an offering of our best to God. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if we're not trusting God with our finances, then we haven't begun to trust Him with our hearts. That's just not the way it works. When we truly love God, there's a voluntary overflow. There's an abundance of joy that affects the, use, the way that we use our treasures. And it's cross-shaped, guys. It's cross-shaped. And so I leave you this morning with one last glimpse into the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Into the heart, into the crux of the matter, which we get here in verse 9. By these truths, we are saved. By these truths we are saved. And if we believe in them, if we receive them, then by these truths our lives are shaped. Paul summarizes it in this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Jesus said, no one takes this life from me. I give it on my own accord. The lover loved us voluntarily so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Amen.